I started businesses when I was pretty young. So when I was living in the desert as a teenager, I was wearing a lot of black. I was a punk kid and my parents, you know, made a threat that I think a lot of teenagers hear, which is if you're gonna dress that way, you're gonna have to buy your clothes yourself. And usually that's a threat, but I saw that as more of a challenge. Like, okay, well then I'm 14, I live in the middle of nowhere, I'm gonna have to earn my own money. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? On today's show, we have Amanda Brinkman. Even if you don't recognize Amanda right away, chances are you've seen her shirts. The iconic Nasty Woman t-shirts that went viral in 2016 when Donald Trump first made that phrase a feminist rallying cry, which also later became an icon of the Women's March. She turned this viral momentum into Shrill Society, her company, an online platform producing ethically made apparel and products meant to get more women talking and politically active. What you probably don't know is that the t-shirt turned phenomenon was sort of an accident. So today we're going to hear about her journey from designer hobbyist to internet phenomenon and e-commerce CEO. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I would love to hear about that moment, um, really, that almost changed your life and and turning into Shrill Society, that moment when you um, were listening to Donald Trump and what was going through your mind? Where did Nasty Woman come from? Yeah, so I was just in my home office. Um, I was trying to get my printer to work. I was um, a little frustrated. I was watching this debate on my computer. So when that was, you know, kind of said under his breath and like hushed tones, it just really stood out to me. And it stood out to so many people. It was um, really globally heard. And it uh, just resonated with me. And I thought it would be funny to put it on a shirt and to donate half the proceeds of that shirt to Planned Parenthood to kind of create this like circular, you know, like he said this thing, I'm going to reclaim it and I'm going to donate to a charity that he says he doesn't support. And to remind the listeners, he... What what was Donald Trump saying? Like what what specifically? Tell us about the nasty woman context. Yeah, so this was um, the third presidential debate, and he interrupted Hillary Clinton to call her a nasty woman, um, and it was just a moment where you know we saw this woman who was very prepared and um, had already been a leader and was educated and confident, and to see somebody on an international stage. Um, call her nasty because of it, I think resonated so widely with people who, um, you know, we feel like no matter what we do or how we show up in the world that, um, we still get name called, which is really crazy. Mm -hmm. And you, have you always been politically active and a feminist? Yeah, definitely. So, um, when I was young, uh, like preteen or teenager, I got really into punk music and started going to punk clubs and, um, you know, that was really where a lot of politics were discussed. And, you know, we were teenagers, so, like, we were really kind of uh, far-reaching, really thinking about all these different political applications. And at the time, being a feminist was something that really wasn't understood, at least, you know, by me as a junior high student. Um, and it was a theory and a, a word that I really grasped onto. Um, 
and was something that I really rallied behind even before it was kind of more popularly cool or trendy, you know, like this was pre-girl power. Um, And you labeled yourself as that even back then? Yeah, definitely. So as this kind of like punk kid growing up in the desert saying I was a feminist, like everything really aligned that made me kind of stand out, you know, like I was that kid in school who like was sweet and nice and got good grades, but also had like really strong opinions and um, really stood behind my politics. So um, I really kind of wore that as a badge of honor, even though um, at the time it was something that I think was more academic. Yeah. And so you thought it would just be a like a fun thing, um, almost like a, a teaser, right? Putting, creating this shirt. Oh, yeah. I mean, my like side hobby of designing things, I didn't even have a registered business. Um, that's how little income it was making. And it was really just me making stuff, just kind of practicing my design skills, um, just doing stuff that kind of made me laugh. Um, at the time, I was a contemporary art curator and I was working with some difficult artists and it was just a way for me to stop that work at some point in the evening and focus on a hobby. So I thought I was going to sell maybe four or five shirts that night, maybe raise a hundred dollars total. I did not have very big expectations (laughs) for, um, the shirt itself. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Um, so by the end of the night I had sold 50 shirts and I thought that was really incredible. I was going to figure out how to make a shirt the next day as I had never printed a shirt before that. And I went to sleep and I woke up to 20,000 emails and tens of thousands of orders. And it was very exciting and also totally wild. I thought there was some mistake. There was no way that I had received 20,000 emails. And this was purely from Instagram, posting it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So people just started sharing it and, um, with the the post, there was just a link to buy it. It was just a landing page. It was really simple. And yeah, so people just started visiting the website and I woke up to death threats. I woke up to orders. I woke up to celebrities emailing, trying to get the very first one made so they could wear <laughs> it. Um, and there, you know, I got my friends to get her, you know, I have this really big kind of farm table in my house and I try to get as many people around it as possible to just jump in and start answering emails. And we couldn't answer them um, faster than they were coming in. And you were trying to answer every single email um, at the same time dealing with, I'm sure, some emotionally charged feelings with mm-hmm. death, death threats coming in? Yes. So we kind of had to go through every email because... They're, all the emails were going to the same email address, which was my personal email. And this would be a mix between an order, um, a question about sizing, uh, a celebrity or celebrity's manager trying to get a rush order, a death threat. These were all mixed up together in my personal email. So <laughs> it was this really wild uh, few days of just trying to go through that and create a system. And it's really hard to create a management system when you have a snowballing, uh, sort of out of control thing going on, it's really hard to implement systems. Um, but that's where I found myself and I was just putting on Facebook, like if anybody's available, come over to my house today, like just let's Mm -hmm. jump in and do this. So how did you feel 
Um, it was weird. You know, I felt really excited. Um, one thing that I actually don't really talk about very often is one of the shows I curated, um, at a gallery I was at actually considered women who had gone viral. So at this point I had actually worked with a number of women who had gone viral. So I actually was able to call them and be like, I think I'm going viral. What do I do? And it was really interesting because both of them said, you're going to feel elated. It's going to be like a crazy adrenaline rush and high, and then you are going to crash really hard, and you need to be really prepared for that moment. Um, so hearing them, hearing them say that made me feel a little bit better about going through those motions, because that's exactly what happened. I felt elated. It was a crazy adrenaline rush, not a lot of sleep going on. And then after a couple of weeks, just this huge crash because my life was kind of thrown um, off. And, um, you know, you can only read so many death threats before it starts to hurt your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was pretty wild. It was a really, um, you know, pretty extreme emotions. Um, and I was having all sorts of emotions. Just mm-hmm. all of them were very extreme. How did you get through the crash? Um, I think really trying to figure out how to create a sustainable business got me through that crash. I think a lot of people, um, they go viral and it ruins their lives or it ruins their relationships or they kind of just take the money and run. But um, I've only seen a few people who've kind of created a sustainable sort of business after that. And so um, I really use that planning and uh, thinking about how this could be sustainable to kind of get me through that, to see that, like, maybe this wasn't just throwing my life into chaos. Maybe there was, like, something in all that chaos that I could use and, you know, direct and manage and gain control over. Mm-hmm. And then had you been a had you been a business person before? Have you had that experience? Um, yeah, so before that... I had co-founded a nonprofit that still exists called Pelican Bomb in New Orleans. So that's where I really gained insight into nonprofit fundraising, why it's so important to find like unique methods for fundraising. Um, that's where I did all my operations work. So I had an operations background. But really, um, I started businesses when I was pretty young. So when I was living in the desert as a teenager, I was wearing a lot of black. I was a punk kid. And <laughs> my parents, you know, made a threat that I think a lot of teenagers hear, which is if you're going to dress that way, you're going to have to buy your clothes yourself. And usually that's a threat to get your kid to dress the way, um, you know, you, your parents want. But I saw that as more of a challenge. Like, okay, well then I'm 14. I live in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to have to earn my own money. And even living in the middle of nowhere, it was illegal to hire someone under 15. So I was getting creative and I started my first online business then. So this is right around when eBay launched. This was pre-e-commerce, so not um, a lot of e-commerce platforms, not a lot of stores. International shipping was not a thing. You didn't have ShipStation or any of these sort of... What year um, was this? This must have been... Like, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And you did all of this because you wanted to keep wearing black. Yes. <laughs> and it was a challenge because your parents said, you know, make your own money. Yes. Okay. So just to be stubborn, (laughs) um, I saw that I was like on all these message boards and people were so jealous that um, these Americans had access to all this like cool clothing. Um, 
And I was like, huh, well, I have access to that clothing at the local mall, and they don't have access to it. So what if I sold it to them? And these these, these were international forums? Yeah. So okay. this was, I would say the majority of people were in Canada. So I started going to the mall where all my friends worked and using their employee discount to buy this clothing that I would then sell at retail to these customers in Canada. And I lived maybe a few blocks away from one of those like shipping stores. So I used to just walk over there and just ship all this clothing to um, Canada and um, Europe. And you know, this is pre PayPal. So people or the, you know, pre the wide application of PayPal. So people would have to wire me money, you know? Um, so I had to get a bank account. It was this hilarious thing. My parents supported it because they were like, wow, she really <laughs> saw that, uh, clothing challenge as a potential business. So I did that for a while until, um, e-commerce became more popular and, um, yeah. So that was my first kind of e-commerce business mm-hmm. was, Got it. Yeah. And so when this nasty woman t-shirt became this phenomenon and then you had to create Shrill Society, um, your current online platform, what was that like in terms of trying to figure out the actual processes of of creating a real business? Like, did you even have a bank account? Like, what, what were you doing? Yeah. So interestingly, I did not have a bank account when I went viral. And when you do that many sales overnight into your personal bank account, the Fed really takes notice. So my bank account actually got shut down. My mm-hmm. PayPal was frozen. It was mayhem. Um, I had to go to a branch manager and kind of plead my case. And he thought I was really a crazy person. And I made him look up all the, you know, by this time there had been 50 plus articles. And I had to prove. Overnight? Or? This is probably like three days later. Okay. So I had to prove to him that like that was me. And that's where this income was. So he um, opened a business account and said, if you can go to City Hall and get a business license today, we can transfer the money. So I then had to go to City Hall in New Orleans, which isn't the, you know, a city known for its like infrastructure, <laughs> and um, plead for a same-day business license. So it all kind of came together. But um, yeah, so building Shrill Society from that really took me taking a step back and saying, okay, well, now that I have this one kind of flagship product, like what else can I put out there? What else are people wanting? Um, What do I want? Um, You know, do I want to own a t-shirt store or do I want to build more complicated products? Like what is it that I'm doing here? So I have added more apparel um, because that was definitely something that made a lot of sense since it was apparel item that went uh, viral. But then I started building products that got women into more conversation and kind of offered more options um, for introspection and learning. So the first thing I made was this planner. It was an 18-month planner. It was 200-plus pages. It was full of content and full of really, like, inspirational sort of how-tos, that sort of thing. And that sold out really quickly, too. Um, And then I made a game because I wanted to get people actually around a table interacting with one another. And um, I saw a game as a really great way to do that um, without actually having to be present. So if I can get a game on the table, it only takes one person um, at the table to know what the game is. And then all of a sudden you have all these other people interacting with it. They're using the prompts and uh, they're talking, they're learning. So I kind of saw that as an extension of the Nasty Woman shirt. So it seems like you look at your products as more than just products 
they are almost like vessels for a certain message or a certain way of people interacting with each other. Have you always thought of products like that? Yeah. Um, so yes, I have always thought of products that way. I think as somebody who is really aesthetically driven as a young person, um, you know, like I said, living in the desert, kind of being different, like it was really important to me to have those markers of identity. And um, my background um, in contemporary art is actually in visual culture, so it's kind of the intersection between mass communication and visual art, and that includes media and journalism, anything that's visual. So I always really thought that um, product could be really impactful and that um, a product's life didn't really have to just be utilitarian or decorative. It could actually add to your experience or it could bring you a different sense of joy or inspiration. Mm -hmm. You've used the word different a, a few times, um, mm -hmm. both in describing yourself um, as well as the products that you create. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious first about, you know, the sense of, usually when people say difference, there's a sense of otherness. Mm -hmm. um, how do you look at yourself in terms of this difference where you stand out? Yeah, I think for me, the difference was always, or my understanding of difference always was in um, being pretty independent. Like from a really young age, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to fit in with any one crowd. I had my own interests and I made my own friend groups. In high school, it was funny because I was kind of popular only because people were like, whoa, she doesn't do anything with the school. She's not on any team. She doesn't come to our dances. But they knew I had this really rich life outside of school. So people were, um, I think, really intrigued by that. So I think... And rich life being your your company, I guess? Or? Yeah, like I was always going to like music shows or museums. I had friends who like you know, I lived um, outside of Phoenix, so this big, you know, expansive area, and I had friends who lived all over. So sometimes you would see, like, kids who didn't go to our school picking me up, and that's always <laughs> like, whoa, who is that? What's going on? Um, so I use difference more as a, you know, I never felt the need to really fit in, and I think because of that, I had a lot of flexibility with just, you know, thinking about who I am, what I like, what I do. Um, who I surround myself with, I didn't really feel trapped by my environment or like um, that I had to be a part of a pack. And I think that really led to me being able to just be really flexible and find a lot of freedoms. Mm -hmm. Has there been any downside to that independence? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is a downside as much as it's just a part of it where you know, as soon as I turned 18, I was like out of that town and I've been moving a lot since then. So it can be kind of hard not to have a home base or, um, you know, sometimes I see people who I'm like, oh, wow, like they live in the same place they always lived. And there's something nice about that. Maybe that familiarity or that uh, sense of community, you know, um, I don't know if that's really a downside for me because I like going all over the place. Mm -hmm. But um, it is something that I, like, acknowledge and think about from time to time. Yeah. And how do you think about your products being different? Mm -hmm. um, so I really see my products as just there isn't anything quite like them in terms of how they function, 
um, what people project onto them, what they provide people in terms of um, feeling of sense of community or um, a part of their identity really makes sense. So with the shirt, you know, that's really visual. So people were able to identify each other, you know, really easily wearing it. Um, you know, when I spot one in the wild, it's always like a really fun moment. Um, and I love when people send me photos, you know, do you ever go up to them and be like, I designed that shirt. I did it once and she looked really shocked. Like, what are you talking about? So I don't do it anymore. I think I startled her too much. Um, but, uh, there was a guy wearing one, um, not too long ago and he, I stopped him and he was so thrilled. Um, so that was really fun. But um, you know, with the planner, that was more introspective. So that was something that I I wanted to offer um, as a continuation of the shirt. And then the game, you know, my hope is now you have the, the visual marker that gets people to recognize one another. You had the planner that got you thinking. And now you have a forum in which you can share those things. Mm-hmm. So my hope is to kind of create a almost like um, customer journey mm-hmm. in a sense where you actually go through these different experiences of growth and communication and community building. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's um, pretty different for a shirt, yeah. <laughs> you know, the lifespan yeah. of a shirt. Yeah. And so this, the Nasty Woman game then is something that you've recently released. Um, yeah. And it is, like, people have called it, like, heart, uh, cards, of, um, cards Against Humanity for Feminists. Yeah. And, um, tell me about the inspiration for that and what's the content within the product. Yeah. So, um, I was really just thinking like, how do you get people talking and how do you get people talking in a way that's fun and, um, where the barrier, um, eventually is pretty low and where you could talk about politics without getting into a fight. And I was like, I don't really know. That seems pretty complicated. Um, so I was thinking about different products and tools that get people talking You know, and I was thinking about if you were to invite me over on a Friday night and say, hey, come over for wine. We're going to be talking about politics. I'd probably be like, I'm busy. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know if that sounds fun. I don't know how I'm going to interact with your other guests. Like, that could be a really crappy night, you know. Um, So with the game, it's a political game, but it's really funny as well. And um, in the game itself, you're not... Um, you don't win or lose based on your knowledge. So you're not penalized for what you do or don't know. You actually progress and win the game based on um, comedy and timing and um, your ability to kind of put yourself out there and kind of be a little bit more vulnerable. So, um, And I had seen, because when I looked at the game, there's there are things like helping you define, like, what is mansplaining? Or... Right, yeah. So the game... Um, it's a different type of game mechanics. So game mechanics are just like how the game works. So there isn't a game quite like it. So I built the mechanics. Um, so you have these improvisational cards. So these are half statements. Um, and everybody at the table kind of yells out their answer. But then along the way, you kind of have these things that trip you up. So these are scam cards or attack cards. Like you could be attacked by a manspiner or you could be <laughs> attacked by the gender pay gap, you know, yeah. and... <sighs> These things are further defined in a pamphlet that comes in the game, so everything is defined. So if you're like, well, what is that? You can read statistics or you can read a definition of something. So my hope, too, is if somebody's like, why would I be attacked by this thing? What does that even mean in my life? You Mm -hmm. can actually turn to this um, 
kind of report of sorts and be like, oh, I see how this clearly affects my life and how this does hurt me. Mm. Um, and in the game, you want to collect the nasty women cards. And so these are women throughout American history who have championed certain ideas and ha- are activists or scholars or, um, you know, uh, entertainers or people who really kind of changed culture for the better. Like Gloria Steinman, Susan mm-hmm. B. Anthony types. Yeah, yeah. like, in, you know, Janet Mock, somebody who is, you know, um, a host and an entertainer and author. But people who have really tried to use their own work to really just, like, better the world. And so in the game, the more of them you have on the side, your greater chance for winning in successes. So just in, like, real life. It kind of functions that way. The more nasty women in your life, the more likely you're winning. (laughs) Exactly. So that's kind of like the point of the game. And then hopefully some of the nuances that start to emerge is um, what these women championed and stood for is at odds with, you know, the attack cards and the scam cards. The trump cards. Exactly. So in the game, you don't want to get the trumped card because that that makes you lose the game. Um, So it's all strategy, too. So um, what's been really exciting is watching other people play this game and to see how people react to it, um, the different sort of comments and conversations. Oftentimes people don't even finish the game because they get into such like important conversations um, that that, you know, and for me, that's great. Like, if you finish the game, great. I want you to finish it. But if you don't, because you get into a conversation that's really important and impactful for your group, then I see that as winning, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see how this, you know, takes yeah. on a life of its own. So a lot of people think about pop culture as this um, sometimes, like, ephemeral, flippant thing Um how would you define pop culture and um, the impact that it can have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think what's so rich and powerful about pop culture is people sometimes assume that it is flippant. Um, and I think that's where you can really sneak in some really impactful and important stuff. So, for example, my graduate work looked at Twilight fans. Mm-hmm. So the Twilight That was your, your thesis was on the Twilight Yes. Yeah. So my thesis was actually on the fans and the fans who would travel mm. to all the book locations. And I started traveling with them to see what compelled them. Why were they traveling? How did their relationships develop? How did this disrupt normal tourism? How did this transform entire communities in rural Washington? Um, so, you know, a piece of pop culture in which, like, I would not say is a feminist work by any means, created this really fascinating, um, you know, output of women really loving this kind of romance story, their traveling Vampire together. romance. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, how that transformed entire, like, rural communities and how, um, you know, this kind of allowed some women to talk about sex and sexuality Um, when that wasn't really cool, maybe in their, like, conservative or, you know, religious households. So, um, you know, whether or not people think pop culture is valuable, there's a reason it's consumed the way that it is. And that does create relationships and value-based reactions, you know? And if anything, it's like pop culture, it, it defines generations, right? Yeah, definitely. And the 
the way that pop culture can influence people i mean it can influence them positively it can influence them negatively mm-hmm. like um one of the things that i think about often is just um especially for girls and women it's like you can't be what you can't see mm-hmm. and how is pop culture influencing what we believe is possible for us mm-hmm. yeah definitely um and i think the more that we see like powerful women in pop culture you know and like when we have greater representation then like there's more to see meaning that there's more options of being right to kind Mm -hmm. of like flip that quote on its you know kind of um updated head but um yeah so I think pop culture is you know hugely important and it's a huge industry too so Mm -hmm. the people who are saying it it isn't important like I don't know where they're living or what they're doing because everybody interacts with pop culture on a daily basis unless you're like not listening to a podcast on your Apple product. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, and I think that there's also this desire that people don't really often recognize in themselves, but it's the desire to live vicariously through someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's living vicariously through someone else's success mm-hmm. um, or someone else's like fame, you know, sure. whatever it is. Um, it's, in some ways, it can be an escape. In other mm-hmm. ways, it can be something that helps make you a bit more present. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about the idea of, you know, you, you had this viral moment, um, but almost like ephemerality? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of the tough thing to think about because, you know, I made something that was of a moment. And there is a fear around that ephemerality and that it could disappear or slip through my fingers. Um, and I think that's why kind of building upon not just nasty woman as a slogan, I guess you can say, but actually as like a person and an identity and a community, um, trying to kind of concretize like what that means. Um, and I think that's the, the challenge, but also the, you know, kind of fun of Mm -hmm. it. And on that topic of, you know, fears, you know, this the, the whole conversation that we're having here um, ultimately stems back to, you know, enoughness and mm-hmm. what drives people. Um, and a lot of times what I found is, you know, that even as you were talking about the ephemerality of that moment, um, almost the fear of it slipping away and maybe you haven't done enough with this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other fears, you know, potentially that might be under the surface for you? Yeah, I mean... I think one that's like hugely disrupted my life um, in great ways and in bad ways. And so I think one fear is like it disrupted my life and then goes away or becomes like, what if that's where I peaked, where my career peaked? Like, wouldn't that be disappointing? (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And also, um, you know, to be really just like candid about it, um, this is something that I've been you know, she'll say something I've been building from the ground up since going viral. Um, and it's just what I'm doing. It's what I'm building, but I'm seeing other kind of women empowered or feminist empowered sort of branding being co-opted by anyone and everyone. And I think, um, if the integrity isn't there, it just hurts people like me who are trying to build a sustainable and ethical, business that actually supports women 
through like the charitable donations and how I hire and how I build and make things. Um, so that it is a fear of mine that like its own popularity is actually going to hurt it in the long run. So popularity is like its demise. Yeah. You know, because then it just becomes a trend and everybody jumps on it and it's just like, what next? You know, we're going to have like bottled water. That's going to be like (laughs) fem empowered. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, there's some real fear there, you know, like uh, I want to make sure what I do is, you know, really based in integrity and thoughtfulness and, um, that I'm just mindful of those people who are just kind of here for the cash grab. Do you feel like that integrity wins out in the long run? I hope so. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I want to say yes. I want to, I want (laughs) to be really positive. Um, I think, I think people also know when they come across a business or a brand or a person who has integrity versus a business brand or person who doesn't. So I think people are really smart about that and can tell that from a mile away. So I'm really hoping that um, people also just support um, businesses and brands and concepts and everything that are actually doing what they say they're doing. And, you know, I think going to like a chain store and buying a girl power shirt when it's made in a sweatshop is like (laughs) not the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We were talking earlier about... Um, well, earlier today about uh, brands and the way people, especially millennials and Gen mm-hmm. Z, consume brands where it, anything that has, there's either the emotional resonance, mm-hmm. um, the cultural, like in the moment reference, or there's just the tangible value of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of the most beloved brands that people subscribe to, like even something like Spotify, if there was a competitor that came by that was a dollar less that did the same thing, mm-hmm. um, we would very easily jump to that. Yeah. Um, how do you think about brands and how they can create sustainable value? Yeah. I mean, I think in order to create sustainable value is to highlight like what the value is and where it's going. So, you know, if you buy from me, like there is a charitable give back model built into the business itself. Um, and that's really core to what I do coming from a nonprofit background. Um, I see that as being really valuable. Um, and I think that differentiates what I'm doing versus, you know, a big chain department store selling, you know, super cheap girl power shirts. Um, and so I think, um, People are really smart, you know, about like the business that they support and maybe why Spotify um, as a brand and as a service and as a product, maybe why we would switch to something that's a dollar less is like, well, I don't really know who Spotify is or what they stand for. You know what I mean? And Mm. so if they have a competitor coming along who to me sounds the same, looks the same, does the same thing, then yeah, I'll probably switch over because... I, I don't know what they do enough to believe in what they do. Um, you know, like if you're going to keep having, you know, R. Kelly on there and profiting (laughs) off of him, like maybe I actually don't care about your business or your model because you don't really care about women. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So like, I think brands are just going to have to become, I don't know. I think they're going to just have to really think about humans and, um, like, that 
they're run by humans, they're for humans, like, and that we all have, we should have integrity and, like, not um, purposely cause harm to others. And I think people are just becoming a lot more, like, aware of that and that they have options and they don't have to spend money on something that really doesn't align with their values. Um, yeah. So I think that's the both the opportunity and the challenge. And I think that you know, looking forward in the same way how at a point when companies were saying, like, if, if you're not a tech company, you're just not a company that mm-hmm. we pay attention to. I think we're coming into an age where it's like if you're not a media company, if you're not a brand, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's you can't get the right customers because we're entering this age where we don't want to be sold to Mm -hmm. like we want the brand to be our best friend we want the brand to be aligned with our values and I and so sometimes I see the biggest mistake that brands make is that they they don't tell us what their values are they Mm -hmm. don't tell us what they stand for um how do you think people especially entrepreneurs now let's say who are building their companies can can think about their brand values and getting that up front in the beginning yeah, um, I mean, this could probably, like, my advice would actually probably counter some, like, I don't know, probably more traditional, like, business practices or MBA practices, you know, where um, I don't really sit there and think, like, who is my audience? What does my audience look like, smell like? Like, what do they love? What do they eat? Who, you know, I don't pick out a name and all this sort of stuff and build this sort of um, person. Um, I really think about, like, what are my values? How does that extend into, a, like, a larger framework? Um, and I really put this to practice. So, for example, when I hire someone, um, let's say I'm hiring a young woman um, and I offer her the job. And this is like, actually happened while I'm using it as mm. an example. Um, she was excited, and she just gladly accepted the job. And I said, no, you're going to negotiate with me right now. And I actually taught mm. her how to negotiate during the hiring practice. And um, she was really shocked by this, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I knew exactly, like, what the company could pay and what um, we could offer, but I wanted to instill those values from Mm. this kind of, like, top-down approach and make it really clear that, like, the business values you. And when you join the team, you're valued, you're wanted here, um, and that I want you to fight for those things. You know, like, if you're going to be working with me, I want you to have that fight in you because, like, that's how we're going to grow this, Mm. you know? That's a really interesting test. So it's almost you purposely gave a lower number, see if she can negotiate and and let her negotiate up. Exactly. And when she was, she, you know, she said, I've never negotiated before. I actually walked her through, like, okay, well, this is, like, what happens if they say they don't have enough, you know, revenue or money. These are the, you know, you can ask for more part-time off. You can ask for some flexible working hours. You can ask for this and that. And so I kind of walked her through like all the different ways that you could negotiate. Um, because you know, I'm going to be using her brain and her time. Um, and that's worth something. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was, um, a really fun learning experience for her, but also as somebody building a business and building a brand, just being like, okay, this is something that's important, you know, especially working with young women, who are just excited to be offered the opportunity Mm. um, and maybe not understanding the kind of power dynamics here. Like, if I'm hiring you, it's because I want you. (laughs) You know, which means you do do have some power, you know? Yeah, 
Yeah. I, I want to go back to what you had just said about um, your brand advice being different from that traditional kind of business school, mm-hmm. like where you map out the persona of your customer um, and focusing instead on yourself and mm-hmm. who you are, what your values are, um, which is more in trend with this kind of micro-influencer thing mm-hmm. where where we like individuals as brands and like that individual kind of um, creates these lines of products, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and that would work specifically if you're building a company based off of your mission around your own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so then have you ever tried to market to someone who isn't in your demographic? Yeah, I mean, what's so funny about this too is that like, I don't really consider myself an influencer because I'm actually kind of shy, you know? Like, um, if you go on my Instagram or the business Instagram, like, you would have to go back probably, like, 800 photos until you saw a picture of me. And I don't think that's a great way to run your business, <laughs> you know? But it's it kind of um, is just right now I'm just trying to highlight that, like, I'm still figuring it out and struggling with that as well um, because there is something that feels a bit unnatural to me about like seeing myself as the brand and the product and it's for sale that that doesn't come naturally to me so um that's still something that i'm like negotiating myself so when you create products it's like only things that you would wear or use or not necessarily like i definitely have in mind like a friend or something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I do make and create things for people in like my immediate surroundings, you know, and um, it always like feels good when I have like samples, you know, and I'm bringing samples to work or um, to a photo shoot and people ask if they can keep it. And I'm like, oh, that's a great sign. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, I was mentioning earlier to you that I had an event yesterday or the day before. And um, there was, like, 15 copies of the game, and people were playing with them. By the end of the night, they had all disappeared. And um, I was really excited that people were like, oh, how, I'm going to keep this. I love it so much. Not that I want people taking things, <laughs> but, you know, they were open. We were playing with them, so it was fine. But um, that people really love it, you know? Yeah. Got it. Um, so what's next for you? It's a good question. Um so I'm really interested in um, getting the game out there and just like ha- interacting with more people. I'm doing some kind of teaching opportunities around the country. And, you know, one thing that I'm really looking forward to doing is kind of talking about the intersection between like doing good work and doing work for good. And that I don't think that being in business means you have to be like a horrible, shrewd capitalist, you know, I think um, there's lots of room to do some good work and make some positive, um, some positive impact. So that's what I'm looking forward to. That's awesome. I think you're a great example of someone who is really living their values, both personally as well as professionally. Mm -hmm. So I want to applaud you for that. Oh, thanks. Um, So the way that I end every episode is with the one thing. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that all it takes is one person and one voice to Mm -hmm. completely change someone's life or experience. So 
going to ask you a few of your one things. Uh-huh. Okay, are you ready? Yes. What is one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend to anyone? Oh, that's a good one. So what's funny about this is for so long I only read nonfiction, and I was only reading theory. Like, I'm really nerdy. I was reading a lot of theory and academia um, and other nonfiction work, and for the past, like, two or three years I started reading a lot of fiction mm. um, and really wanting to just do that a lot more. So I really, like... I'm going to recommend the book that I just finished that I really loved, which is Circe, which is the retelling of Circe's perspective in the Cersei Odyssey. Circe Lannister? Oh. No, no, no. <laughs> no, from the Odyssey. So okay, she, okay. Um, yeah, so I, I really loved that book and um, thought that it was really beautiful and, um, you know, she was kind of this, like, outcast in the Odyssey and it was really cool. So I'm going to recommend that book just because I read it. Is it a strong female character? Yes, like, of course. <laughs> cool. Um, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Um, I think one piece of advice I'd give my younger self is, uh, this is such a good and hard question, is to allow myself to take credit for my work. Um, I think as a, a young person who was really shy and who was kind of an overachiever, um, I had a hard time also um, taking credit and allowing myself that praise. And so looking back, I'm just like, well, that was silly. Like, I should definitely have let myself um, feel good. Do you still feel like you have a hard time with that? Yes. <laughs> 100%. Um, I think that's probably why it's like hard to find me. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, I kind of bury myself in my work and hope that it speaks for itself. But I think, you know, um, that's that's my opportunity and my challenge. <laughs> What's one piece of advice you would give to budding entrepreneurs? Yeah, my advice there would be to build a brand and a business that you can really stand behind and that you feel really proud of. Don't build the brand and business that you are trying to to impress others with or you think um, can just make a ton of money. I think if you are not happy with it and you don't stand behind it, you're just going to create a job that you don't like. And if that's the case, you might as well just go get any other job. Yeah. It's so funny with this, with money, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. I've, I've met enough people in my journey who have said that their only goal is to make a ton of money. Yeah. No matter how they do it. And the thing is, is like, it's really easy to create a job that you hate. Yeah. You know, like it's really easy to do that. So I think if your goal is to make a lot of money, you could probably do that. You might not like yourself during that time. You might not like how you spend your time and you might not like the way your life looks before and after, you know? Um, and so I think for me, some of the biggest advice I have is to like build the business you actually love and want to see in the world. Otherwise, you're just going to hate your job and like why go through all the work of building your own <laughs> business just to hate your job. Yep. Um, what is one question you wish people would ask more often? Um, I, hmm, that's a really good question. I think especially in this like entrepreneurial community, we don't have a lot of realistic conversations about money. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people I know who 
have seemingly like amazing lives and great businesses are actually really struggling, um, either with finances or, you know, growing their business. It's really tough. And I think, um, we want to pretend everything is working really smoothly and everything is like pretty and shiny and the veneer is like perfect because if we show that our business or our own like entrepreneurial journey has cracks in it, it makes us look weak. And I think that's really, it's just not sustainable at all. And I think being able to talk about issues surrounding how to make money or how to do your job better, how to hire or making mistakes and kind of recovering from them is really important. So what's Uh, that question? I guess that question is like, what do you need help with? Mm. Awesome. And then lastly, because I want to make this podcast as actionable as possible Mm -hmm. for our listeners, what is one challenge, one micro action that you want to issue to our listeners today that they could go out and do right after this episode? Mm. Um, That's a good question as well. I think getting off your computer, getting off your phone and just like trying to go out and actually be present and in the moment with somebody else whose company you enjoy, I think is really great. Like I'm so, you know, I'm thinking about personal interactions so much and, you know, with the game we talked about, that's so important to me that I think just doing that and just strengthening your relationships is really important. So my one thing would be like, just get off your phone or your computer and go do something nice. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you for having me. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness and you can find me at LisaWorks L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.